I'm thankful that uh, John selected songs that prepare us for a communion later on in this service. And in some ways, the whole of our service is really uh, geared towards that end when we get to partake together um, in remembrance of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. The, the greatest news in all of history and all of the world is that God has given his son to save sinners. And when we take communion, we are remembering that. The basic truths of scripture and really a basic truth of the world that we live in is that God has made the whole world. That's where the Bible begins. It begins with God out of nothing, creating everything. And because he's the creator of everything, he is therefore the owner of all things and the one to whom all things owe their allegiance. The pinnacle of God's creation uh, was mankind. Adam and Eve that he made in his own image. And in that place really of eminence that God gave to them, they were to have responsibility over the world that God had made. But the story really took a turn for the worse very quickly um, because Adam and Eve rebelled against their maker. And in doing so, sin entered into the world and with the sin came death. And death passed to all men because all have sinned. And so for all time now, since our very first parents to now, all people share really the same fate that is facing the judgment of God because we all have sinned. And if there's any question in your heart about whether that is true, you just merely have to do a very quick evaluation of your life compared to God's standard. God's standard is perfection. And our life falls so short of that. Perfection includes simple things like not lying. And yet all of us at one time or another have deceived others. More than just at one time or another, we do it rather regularly, unfortunately. God's standard includes perfection in the realm of sexual morality, and Jesus' standard for that is that even if you look at someone else and lust for them, you have committed adultery in your heart. None of us could say that we're free from that guilt. The standard of righteousness goes on to say that you shall have no other gods before the one true God. Anything that you put in place of God, that you serve more, delight in more, love more than him, qualifies as an idol, and that is the breaking of the very first commandment. Now we could go on through the rest of God's law and find that every last one of us falls short and fails in many ways. The consequence, the price of our failure, of our act of rebellion against God is death, not just physical death, but what Jesus calls the place of anguish, the place where fire is not quenched and the worm does not die, a place that the Bible calls hell. It is a place where God justly punishes those who have rebelled against his ways. And left to ourselves, none of us can find any way of escape from that condemnation. We cannot be good enough. We cannot say the right things. We cannot fix our own lives up enough. We all stand under that condemnation if left to ourselves. But the greatest news in all the world is that God did not leave us to ourselves. He sent a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, who eternally existed with God the Father for all eternity. And he entered into the world taking on humanity so that he would wrap himself in flesh 
and live out that perfect life that none of us lived so that when it came the time for a man to pay the price of judgment, the perfect man would take the substitute of the imperfect man, the perfect in place of the sinful, the sinless in place of the impure, so that Jesus Christ would stand in the place of the sinner and bear the wrath of God against sinners. And he did that at the cross. That's what Good Friday is about. And there, the Son of God absorbed the wrath of the Father and he was crucified and he died and he was buried. And on the third day, Jesus rose gloriously to life again because death could not hold him. He was so perfect. And God put the vindication on his life as the perfect man by raising him again from the dead. And now, because Jesus Christ is Lord, there is a message to the gospel that is proclaimed to all the nations. And God right now, during the time from the resurrection of Christ until Christ returns, there is a time where the gospel of grace is being offered to all mankind if they will repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And through that repentance, through that trusting in Christ, the gift of forgiveness of sins is given to all who would receive him as Lord and Savior. And that is offered to all who are here today. And for those who receive that, that's really what communion is about. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ being crucified for sinners so that we can be set free from the condemnation of sin and death and be welcomed into the kingdom of God where there is no sin, where there is no death, where there is only perfect harmony with God forever. This is the greatest revelation of God. It is really, as we talk about the gospel, it is what God wants the world to know about him, that he's a just God, but he's also a God of mercy who grants forgiveness to those who are in Christ Jesus. God has built this world so that he would be known, so that he would be revealed. He wants us to know who he is and what he is like, and this is really the whole of scripture from Genesis to Revelation revealing who this God is. And we've been taking um, quite some time to go through this wonderful book of Exodus that is another component that reveals who God is. And this morning, uh, although we won't unpack much more of the gospel this morning, I wanna look at a portion of scripture with you that unpacks for us more about who God is and what he is like. And so I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. This is a portion of scripture where God is giving rather detailed and precise instructions about um, the building of the tabernacle. It is a place where he is going to dwell with his people of Israel. This happened about 3,500 years ago. The tabernacle no longer exists. It was a picture that was given to Israel and really to the world to show what it looks like to have God Almighty dwell amidst a people. And so God gives rather detailed instructions about what his house should look like. And all of them are fascinating if you look at them from a certain point of view. And so we want to look at two elements of his house this morning, a table and a lampstand. Let me read for you Exodus chapter 25, verse 23 to the end of the chapter. You shall make a table of acacia wood, Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. 
And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold, and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie, as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls, with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flower shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand and on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Well, let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would apply this word to us. Grant us understanding by your spirit. And we pray, Father, that as a result of our time together, you'd leave us transformed more like Christ, more reverent of your holiness, and more understanding of how great you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I need you to um, do your best to pay attention through these detailed instructions. I know it's not necessarily the most immediately engaging reading, but I trust that as we try to unpack these things, there will be um, something beneficial for you. Again, the whole of the tabernacle is really given to reveal something of the greatness, the glory, the excellency, the holiness of God. And in this case, as the instructions for a lampstand and for a table are given, they're really given to show to his people just how good, just how kind God is. And for Israel, there's going to be this kind of dilemma that they're going to face for their whole history. They're going to have the option either to face themselves towards God in all of his holiness, all of his law, all of his mercy, all of his grace, all of his life-giving goodness, all of his light-giving path-leading. They can either turn themselves toward him or they can turn their back towards him. And when they turn their back towards him, they're really turning their back on all of that goodness, all of that beneficence, all of the grace that is there in God, all of the life-giving provision and light-giving of our God. Some people turn their backs on God just out of the conviction that there is no God. They say that they are freer and better off without God. 
They believe that they are more independent. They have the right to choose their own morality. They feel that they are emancipated when they declare there is no God. When they do that, they are turning their back on the source of light and life. I take it that most of you here are here not because you have turned your back on God, but because you know that he is the source of light. He is the source of life. And you want to turn towards him. And you have the inclination not to leave God out of your life. You rather want to turn and follow him. However, we know that at times we leave him out of our life. We kind of excise him from certain areas of our life, certain decisions, certain motives. And perhaps we think because of the rituals that we keep in our life, whether it be coming to church on Sundays or Bible reading or prayer, that our life kind of has God's stamp of approval over all of it. And yet we realize, don't we, if we look at our, look at our lives, that there are moments where we, we turn our backs on him. We don't invite him into the whole of our lives. We kind of carve out our own path, forge ahead in decisions without consulting him, go ahead with relationships without considering whether they please him. We pursue ideas or jobs or even sometimes ministries without consulting whether this really is from the Lord and for the Lord. And symptoms of a life with God kind of left behind us can be things like presence of immorality, unnecessary fears, self-reliance, becoming easily frustrated when our plans don't work out, ingratitude, lack of prayer, contentment, lack of contentment, lack of peace. All these things may be symptomatic of times in your life where you are turning your back on the source of light and life. And we, of course, know, know that does, doesn't get us anywhere good. And it gets us there fast when we turn our back on him. God is life and God is light. You have to believe this. You have to know this, that he is life and he is light. To say that God is life means that he has life in himself. Nobody gave it to him. Nobody started God. No one made him. He doesn't need anything furthermore in order to survive. His life is dependent upon no one and nothing. He doesn't need food to survive. He does not need shelter to survive. He does not need oxygen or space. He just is, and he will always be. And therefore, he is the one from whom all life is derived. There is no one before him and none after him. He is the one who gives life, sustains life, both physical and eternal. And when you come to know that God is the God who gives you both physical life and eternal life, then you know from that point onward there is no life outside of him. We say God is light, and that means that God has light in himself. 
He needs no one to shine a light on him. He needs no one to shine a light on the path in front of him. He dwells in unapproachable light. As a matter of fact, his first act of creation, ex nihilo, out of nothing, was to say, let there be light. And out of the power of his spoken word, light came. From then onward, if we believe that, we know then that all light in this world is derivative from him. And so to leave God behind you then is to leave behind life and light. You will not find those things within your natural self, nor anyone else save God. You will not be able on your own to pull an Edison and create your own light bulb. You will not on your own be able to pull a Dr. Frankenstein and generate life. God is light and God is life. And God is interested and invested in communicating that to the world. And he does that in a variety of ways. He does that just in the world that we live in. As we look at his natural revelation, we see life everywhere. You look into the depths of the sea and there's life. You look above you and there's life. You look all around you and there's life. Sometimes you even look underneath your feet and you see creeping, crawling life. There's life everywhere. Under a microscope, life. And we know, I think just intuitively, life does not spontaneously arise. There is an ultimate life that has to give source to all derivative life. And that is God himself, the God who put life into this world. We also know in natural revelation that God has put light into this world. We see the glorious sun, the beautiful moon, the stars in the heavens. We have that orb in the sky that's so bright that if you look at it for a prolonged time, you do damage to your eyes. The sun is perpetually burning, perpetually giving light. You cannot really extinguish it or effectively block it out. It is always there. And yet we intuitively know that that sun did not spontaneously generate itself. There is a source of all light in this universe. And it is God himself. God is light and God is life. And while we can look to natural revelation for those attributes of God, we see them with a greater clarity in his special revelation as he puts designs into this world that reveal something of his nature and his attributes. And that's what God is doing in the building of the tabernacle. He's kind of erecting a picture for people to look at so when they look at it, they learn something of the nature of God. We saw last week that the very first element of the tabernacle that was given instructions to be built was the Ark of the Covenant. And through that, we see that God is a law-giving God and a merciful God. But as you kind of move out from there, you see some further features of the tabernacle and we see some additional ideas about who God is. And as we look at just two pieces of furniture for the rest of our time, a table and a lampstand, we see God is life and God is light. And because he is those things, turn yourself fully towards him because you will not find those things anywhere apart from him. 
The first piece of furniture that reveals God is the God is life and God gives life is this table. This table is described there in verses 23 through 30. It's placed into a room just outside of the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was. Just outside of that was a curtain, and behind that curtain was another room that was kind of boxed in. And in that room, there are three articles of furniture, a table, an altar, and a lampstand. This table was on one side of that room. On the other side of the room was the lampstand, and in between them was the altar. This table, It's a rather special table. It's made out of acacia wood, it says, and it has certain size to it, described as two cubits, a cubit from the elbow to the tip of the finger, about 18 to 20 inches. Cubit, uh, its breadth, uh, two cubits its length, and a cubit and a half its height. If you're keeping track of these things, you'll notice that it's of similar but not exact size to the Ark of the Covenant. The ark is a little bit larger, but it's the same height. And you'll see that this um, table represents or mirrors the ark in a number of ways. Structurally built out of this acacia wood, and then it's overlaid with pure gold. Again, if you're kind of following along with this, you'll see that there is gold that overlaid the ark and on top of the ark was the mercy seat made out of pure gold and now you have a table that is overlaid with pure gold and you think there's a lot of gold going on here in this temple house you know a lot about a person by how they decorate you walk into somebody's house and you kind of look around you can kind of get a little bit of a feel for what they like they're like some houses you walk in you think this person doesn't like to decorate at all they walk into another house and they, wow, all this person does is decorate. And some people have kind of a Victorian style, some kind of have a modern style. You walk into my office and you realize I have no style. You just see that there's, it's just kind of a hodgepodge of things. You learn a lot about decoration. Well, if I walked into your house and I look around as I enter in, I see there you have a coffee table and it's a gold coffee table. Look at your dining room table, and it's a gold table, and you've got gold chairs, you've got a gold chandelier, and you've got kind of even gold wallpaper, and you've got gold utensils, forks and knives and spoons, and I think, wow, we got to sit down and have a chat. What's going on? But if you walk into the room that belongs to a king, into his dining room, you would not be surprised to find that it is composed of the most exquisite furniture, of precious metals, things that display a regality and a majesty that is equivalent to, or at least trying to hold up, the majesty that the king is supposed to possess. Well, here you are walking into the room of the king. Not just the king, but the king of kings. And what would you expect except to see the greatest majesty, the greatest display of excellency, something that shows his value, his purity, his holiness. And you wonder how else would God communicate to mankind how regal, how majestic, how pure, how perfect, how valuable he is. And so there's a lot of gold 
We don't have time to unpack this right now, but I just encourage you to take some time and consider that when the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us, the kind of state that he entered the world into, being born to a humble family, placed in a manger, says something about the kind of God that we serve and worship. Yes, a God whose room could be decked out in gold, but also a God who took on flesh, dwelt among us, and he was almost indistinguishable visibly from the rest. The features of this table go on. It describes that there's a molding around to the edge of it, and similar again to the ark, which had a molding around it where the mercy seat would be placed on top of. Here we have a table with a molding around it and not a mercy seat, but now we have bread that would be placed on top of it. There's also this thing called a rim about a hand breadth wide, just a couple of inches wide that would go around it. And that rim had a molding as well. And I think the best explanation is that that is a, a stabilizing feature of the table. And then there are these rings and poles, also a reminder of the ark. Rings that would attach to the side of the table, poles that went through those rings, and it would be a reminder that this table is not just to be kind of lifted up by some movers and thrown on their back while they move it around. No, this table is the table of the king, and it is to be held with respect and care as it is moved along. Unlike the ark, it is not stated that the poles need to stay in at all times, but it is to be carried carefully with respect for its prominent position. Not only that, but this table, along with the ark, are the only pieces of furniture that, when they're moved, get covered over with three layers of covering. The ark gets three kind of curtains and skins laid over it, and then the table as well has three things laid over it while it's transported to protect it, to keep it safe. There are other features associated with the table, the dishes, plates, cups, bowls, those in some way help out with the offerings that go on, all to be made of pure gold. And you get the sense that this is like a, a food table. When people acquire tables, although there are some decorative tables, usually they are functional tables. They have some purpose to it. They have a bedside table to help hold the things next to them as they go to bed. But most of all, we have some dining room table and that has a specific function. Uh, when we bought a dining room table a couple of years ago, we had some key attributes that we had in mind for what we wanted our table to look like. We wanted it to be large enough to seat a family of six. We wanted it to be expandable to be able to accommodate extra guests. And we also wanted it to be made super solid because we knew that our kids were only going to get older and bigger and we wouldn't want everything kind of tipping over when they leaned on it heavily. And so that's the kind of table we got. It had a function. And you can look at this table and you think, wow, it's made, of, it's made of gold. It's overlaid with gold. It's just this beautiful piece of structure. What's it for? The point of the table is not necessarily the table itself. The point of the table is what you do with it, what it's there for. And this table, what it's there for is to put bread on it. A table overlaid with pure gold that is going to hold bread. And that's, this is all for, verse 30, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. The whole point of the table is to be a place where bread was placed. 
It was going to be placed just outside of the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt. And so it was really effectively in his presence. It was his table. And the bread was to be regularly set there. You can look later at Leviticus 24, 5 through 9, which describes the bread. It's bread that's made out of fine flour. It was to have over four quarts of uh, flour per loaf. That's a big loaf of bread. And there to be 12 loaves made, and there to be um, set out in either two piles of six or two rolls of, rows of six, making 12 loaves each. And that's a clear reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're to sit in the presence of God for a whole week. And at the end of the week, the priests who are representatives of, representatives of the people would take those loaves and eat them in a holy place. And it was described as a covenant forever. That bread set on that table, large family-style loaves of bread, 12 of them, was not for God to eat. Some other religions set out offerings with the idea that this is their God's food, their nourishment. That's not the case here. God says in Psalm 50, verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Not that God does get hungry, but if he, even if he did, he wouldn't tell us. We're not gonna be the ones feeding him. So this bread is not ultimately really for him or his nourishment, but rather it is for the priests to go in and eat this holy bread that spent a week in the presence of God and is served to them from his table. A table, by the way, that looks an awful lot like the Ark of the Covenant that contains the law. Basic meaning of this table is that the king who dwells among the people feeds his people. Feeding and nourishment being essential to life. In other words, he gives and sustains life, and he gives it from his very presence, from his table. Try to come back to that in just a few moments to think that through a little bit more. The next piece of furniture that's here is this lampstand. This lampstand. The table shows us that God gives life. The lampstand shows us that God gives light. This is, this lampstand is one of those Hebrew words that um, actually is used in, uh, in English. Uh, it's a menorah. Menorah. That's what this is. It is what you see in those pictures, that a single-stemmed lampstand with branches coming out from it. Unlike the ark and the table, this is to be made exclusively of gold, no wooden substructure. It's to be made of a talent of pure gold. That's um, up to about 75 pounds of gold. And notice the language that's here. It is to be worked or hammered into the shape design. It is to be one piece, a single thing. It has a base that clearly is there to keep it upright. And then you hear this description of stem and cups and calyxes and flowers and branches. Those are structural and decorative components. It says that these cups are to be composed in verse 33 of to be like almond blossoms, with calyx, the calyx being the outer wrapping of leaves around the flower, 
and a flower. So you have this main stem, and from it you have six branches, two or three sets of two branches going out from the main stem. And along those branches, there are these decorative uh, items that mirror what it looks like for an almond tree to be in blossom. And then up that main stem, you also have these cups with the calyx and the flower kind of being the intersection of those branches. And you have four of those with the last one at the top. And at the top of these, of course, you would set the lamps. But the picture that is really conveyed here is that this looks like a tree. A tree that is in blossom, an almond tree that's flowering. And at the apex of its flowering is light. Because there are to be these lamps, of course, that's what the lampstand is for. A lamp stand holds lamps. This would be a little bowl with a pinched end that would hold olive oil, and you put a wick in it, and you give off light that way. Of course, this lampstand, it says, was in verse 37, to give light on the space in front of it. So you can see. Not that complex. This ornate lampstand with all of its decorative elements is really there for the purpose of giving light. And it's a light that exists in the presence of God. It had seven lamps on it, which is not an arbitrary number. That number reflects the perfection of God. Perfect light. Table of gold that holds bread in the presence of God, a light in the presence of God that shines light into the room. Let's try to put this together and draw some lessons from this. God is the God who gives life. And Israel ought to know this from the fact that that bread was there on that table. The priests were to represent all of the people before God. There were a tribe, the tribe of Levi, and from that, a family of Aaron that would represent really all of the people of Israel. And they, the representatives, were given this privilege of eating that bread. And they were to go in, arrange those loaves week after week, and then they were to take them week after week and eat them in a holy place. Bread, of course, is a staple food. It's for them, for the Israelites, it was the main part of their diet. They weren't as meat-based as we are. They're much more reliant on food as their, their essential nutrition. And that bread that the, or that the priests ate was the most special of all bread because it remained in the presence of God for a whole week. You get the picture that from the very presence of God, from his own table, he offers to his people, represented by the priests, food, nourishment, life-sustaining nourishment. They're effectively being invited to eat the king's food. If you were invited to a dinner with a king, you would think most likely, depending on the king, of course, that it was one of the greatest honors ever afforded to you. That you would have the opportunity to sit down with this person of royalty and eat from his table. 
And here you have the King of Kings, the sustainer and giver of life, offering from his table nourishment. And yet, there's still something unsatisfying about it. Because those priests would eat that bread, and they'd have to do it again a week later, and then a week later. And even after that bread is gone, they'd have to eat in between that bread because we all get hungry much faster than one week at a time. Our stomachs growl and we realize that we need constant nourishment. We eat one meal, we feel full, and just a few hours later, we feel empty again, ready to eat again, and realize that there is something passing, something temporary about this bread of the presence. Even though it's in the very presence of God, still they grow hungry. And as great of a gift as it was, they would realize that it was only physical life. And they would need to come to a greater realization and to remember that that table which held the bread of the presence was a very similar structure to that ark which held the testimony of God. And this should be kind of a mental picture for the people of Israel, that they think God provides physical nourishment, but there's something greater. Behind that veil, there is another kind of table, another box, another thing that holds something, and this time it holds the very word of God. And it should make the people think, physical food sustains me for a couple of hours. And even at some point, I will come to the end of my life and I will perish. What kind of food will nourish me beyond this physical frail life? What will keep me beyond this? You may think of the very words of Jesus that he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. When the Lord speaks, he says he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. As wonderful as that physical bread was, and what a privilege to eat from the Lord's table. It was a picture that behind that veil is something greater, something better, nourishment that will not fail them. The very word of God and the people of God need to feast on that because you will eat a meal and get hungry again, but when you come to God's word, it nourishes you forever. And that's what we need. We need that which gives life, and that which gives life is the very word of God. And this finds its greatest fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in John chapter 6, after he fed the people, the 5,000, with the loaves and the fish, Jesus is trying to help them see as they want more physical bread that they need something better. And so Jesus tells them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And then Jesus goes on to say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. 
That physical bread as great as a gift was a pointer to the greater revelation of God that he gives in his word. And the greatest culmination of that is the word itself, the Lord Jesus Christ, the living word, the Logos, who came to dwell among us, to give of himself, the one who was in the very presence of God, who came down to earth to dwell among us, to tabernacle among us, to offer his very self to us so that we would never go hungry again, that we might not perish but have eternal life, the life that never ends. That's what he offers to us. And what should we do with him? We feast on Christ. You abide in him. You feast on his word. You take him as your savior and your Lord. And when you come to know him, then you come to know what it means to no longer hunger and thirst in a sense because he has satisfied you. When you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you need look nowhere else for God because he is there. When you come to Christ, you don't need to look anywhere else for wisdom because he has it. When you come to Christ, you don't need to look anywhere else for forgiveness because he gives it. Protection, he grants it. Life, he has it. It's all in him. That's life. And if you have Christ, you have life. The kind of life that really matters. God is life, and he gives it freely from his presence. And God is light. And he gives that also freely from his presence, that guidance, that illumination, that direction on the dark path in this dark world, that change in our own countenance where we go from being desperately depraved to being born again by the word of God, where now we can actually see that menorah, as beautiful as a structure as it was, a tree, a tree that is blossoming like the almond tree is a wonderful picture. And it would provide light for the priests as they go in to perform their acts of worship. That almond tree, that almond menorah made of gold, would be a picture to the people of what they just knew in nature, the almond tree being really the first blossoming tree of spring. It would begin to blossom as early as mid-December around them. It would put out these beautiful white flowers. And it was really a token of the hope of the coming spring. Because eventually those flowers would give way to fruit. The Lord uses the almond branch as an illustration of this promise that will be fulfilled. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, God gives Jeremiah this vision of an almond branch. And the Lord said to Jeremiah, what do you see? Jeremiah said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The almond blossoming into Fruit is a picture of God giving his word blossoming into reality. And from this tree structure, you've got this wonderful picture of these blossoms that are blossoming all over the tree. And the culmination of that is this light. It's light. 
And of course, we should know that the fulfillment of all the promises of God find themselves in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who is described in John chapter 1, verse 4, as in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And in John 1, 9, he described, he's described as the true light, which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. And Jesus himself takes on his own lips in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Remember, the tabernacle was a picture by which God would communicate to this world what he's like. He is the life-giving God, and that life is found in his Son. He is the light-giving God, and that light is found in his Son. A bread that feeds more than just the priests, a light that just shines more than just the room, the light of the world and the bread of life is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is offered to you. And you don't have to go to a particular tabernacle to find it because he is in heaven at the right hand of the Father and he welcomes all who would repent and believe in his name. And they belong to him, forgiven of all their sins and inheritors of the promises of God through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given a revelation of yourself the revelation of yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you make this truth plain to our hearts that you are the God who gives life and the God who gives light? Help us, Father, not to turn away from you, but turn fully toward you. There is no one else that has what you have and offers it so freely. We thank you for your Son and the salvation in him. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.